0: Dr. Larry Pettigrew taught at Pillsbury Baptist Bible College for over 10 years. While he was at Pillsbury, he served as chairman of both the Christian education and Bible departments. Following his time at Pillsbury, he served as the dean of students and taught at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. He was then asked to join Central Baptist Theological Seminary, where he taught for 14 years, serving as registrar and academic dean at different times while at Central. Following Central, he moved on to the Master's Seminary and was Professor of Theology for 12 years, and that is where we met, before accepting the Executive Vice Presidency of Shepherd's Theological Seminary, where he currently serves as Research Professor of Theology. Dr. Pettigrew completed his MRE, his MDiv, and THM at Central Baptist Theological Seminary and his THD at Dallas Theological Seminary. I consider him a great friend. And I'm thankful to the Lord that God has put him in our camp because hopefully, as you'll see tonight, he is a blessing to the church. Dr. Pettigrew, would you come bring us the word?
1: Well, I'm probably the... um newest member almost newest member of the ifca since april and uh, i asked richard is does it make any sense for a 77 year old guy to join a new organization and he said well yeah i think it does so here i am you let me in and uh, i've enjoyed this week it's been a lot of fun and got to meet some of the some of you many i didn't know before and saw some of my previous uh students um i think i was richard's uh advisor in his DMIN program, the thesis that he wrote. Really good thesis. And anyway, it's great to be here and be with you all. Enjoy the singing so much. It's been so much fun. See if we can get into this. Okay, so the day of the Lord is our topic tonight. Uh, This is a big topic, huge topic. It's almost like saying The topic for tonight is eschatology, because it just covers just about everything that there is in the doctrine of eschatology. When I was preparing the message, I I remembered a Peanuts cartoon from many years ago. Charlie Brown was in school. He was sitting at his desk, and he was getting ready to take an exam, and he reads the exam question, discuss World War II, use both sides of the paper if necessary. And that's kind of what we're going to do tonight. We're going to discuss the day of the Lord and use both sides of our our paper. But we're going to really focus in on just uh, the big picture and maybe especially the Lord's judgments on the planet leading up to the second coming of Christ. Somebody told me one time that when you teach the details of prophecy, you have to be humble. And I think that's right. And I know who I'm talking to tonight. Many of you are really good students of prophecy. So when we get into the details, we're all in agreement with the doctrinal statement. Uh, totally committed to that. But when you get the details sometimes of how it all works out, there can be disagreement. And I want you to know that you may be right and I may be wrong. Uh, Dr. Siegler said uh, he's learned that we know a lot more about a prophecy after it's fulfilled, right? <laughs> so there are some things that we're not going to figure out completely perfectly, but I hope we can be a blessing to you. As I thought about the uh, topic of the Day of the Lord, I wondered how each of us should respond to the teachings about the Day of the Lord. Of course, for the unsaved person, he ought to be terrified for what's coming and run to God as fast as possible. Uh, for the nation of Israel, they ought to seek their Messiah right away. And I think for us, I chose number five in Richard's uh List of seven, encouragement. What eschatology does, it encourages us. And I think the events of the day of the Lord, the impending day of the Lord is an encouragement to us. So let's kind of frame our study around that. have a good proposition here. We need to be encouraged by the events of the day of the Lord. First of all, because the Lord is in sovereign control over the cosmic war in heaven and earth. If you have a handout, I'm going to kind of follow through that and fill in with some PowerPoints as we go. But when you talk about the Day of the Lord, you got to go back to the Garden of Eden because that's what sets it all up, right? Is that when we walk into the Garden of Eden, we meet three of the main characters in the Day of the Lord. One is God himself, the creator of the world, the universe, the only God. And then we also meet the human race, Adam and Eve. And we also meet this one being from the unseen world. Uh, God has created two different groups of sons of God. One are those who were to help him in the management of the unseen world, and the other to help him in the management of this world in which we live. So one day, one of these beings from the unseen world came to Adam and Eve with some good news, he thought. He told them, Now, if you will, if you will, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I have some really good news for you. You won't have to be under this restrictive God. In fact, and here's the kicker, he said to them, you from now on will be able to decide what is good and what is evil. And that sounded really good to Adam and Eve. It sounds really good to the human race, even to today. And so they fell. And later that day, Yahweh confronted the guilty pair. They were terrified. They tried to hide themselves, just like those in the day of the Lord are going to try to hide themselves. Calling on the rocks, hide us from the face of him who's on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come. They were terrified. And Genesis 5 then tells us that the Lord pronounces a curse on the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, there are a couple of really important points for the day of the Lord that you pick up here. Uh, One is that God is definitely still in control. And that's a really good thing, because if not, the alternatives would be horrendous, you know. And secondly, a cosmic war was begun that will last throughout Earth history. Thought about number one there. When we sang the mighty fortress is our God tonight, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, right? Because of what God has done for us in Christ. Now, there's a couple of interesting features about this um, statement. Uh, One is, one of the interesting features at least is the fact that these words, offspring and sometimes translated seed, are possibly intended to be either singular or plural. And the people, you know, all the theologians debate over it, whether it's singular or plural. I wonder if it's not both, that both singular and plural are to be understood there. And if that's so, then the chart that you have there on your sheet would be a description of the cosmic war of the ages that's been set up. On the left side of the chart, you've got uh, the forces of good, godly angelic beings, the plural offspring of the woman, and then the singular offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, God incarnated. And then on the right side, you have the forces of evil, uh, Satan, then the plural offspring of the devil, and the singular offspring of Satan, Antichrist, who is Satan indwelt at that particular point. I might be wrong with that. You could talk me out of the both singular and plural, but that's what I kind of think. And because of that, it gives us a good picture of what the cosmic war of the ages is going to be like, or is like, and is continuing on through the end of uh, history here on this earth. Now we know that Jesus Christ defeated the devil, disarmed the devil at the cross. But that's not the end of the story, right? Because the devil still roars around, you know, trying to see who he can devour But in the day of the Lord, the entire right side of this chart is going to be uh, conquered, defeated, and judged. And that will take care of the cosmic war of the ages. So, Christ will kill the Antichrist. He will lock Satan up in the pit. And he finalizes his right to become the mediatorial ruler of the world at that time. Redemption, redemption. Uh, Derek Kidner says, it's about God's rule as much as about man's need. Or as Charles Ryrie would say, it's about the glory of God. It's about the glory of God. So we can encourage, I think, first of all, in the midst of the increased rebellion against the Lord in our culture, because uh, to quote the ESV study Bible, God rules over all of these conflicts and events. He limits their scope and has precise timetable for the trials of the saints to be completed when he will finally intervene to cleanse and deliver his people. And second, we should be encouraged by the day of the Lord's prophecies because the Lord has decreed catastrophic judgments on Satan and his offspring uh, during the day of the Lord. This is a moral universe. God's in control of it. Judgment is coming for the wickedness that's been performed throughout the ages. Now, we're not going to be here for the day of the Lord. Thankfully, we believe in the pre rapture. But I, I wanted to point out also that there is a, um, because we going to talk about the prophets here in just a minute, but there's a significant difference between the eschatological timeline of us, which uh, looks like this. When we do a, a prophecy conference, we'll set it up something like this, with the church age and the rapture and the second coming of the Lord, and the day of the Lord fits in there during the tribulation, and I believe it extends into the millennial kingdom, as we'll, as we'll see. But there's something there that wasn't in the minds of the Old Testament prophets, right? Uh, the church and the rapture were what? Mysteries in the Old Testament, they were secrets. So when we look at the Old Testament prophets, this is pretty much their timeline. They were looking towards, I think they had a, an idea about the cross. They were looking into the judgment of the day of the Lord, which John calls the baptism with fire. And then they were looking for the second coming and the baptism with the spirit with all those blessings at that time. So as we talk about the prophets, this is pretty much their timeline, right? This is what they're looking at off into the future. So in the Old Testament, we find most of the information about the day of the Lord in the literary prophets, we're talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the uh, 12 minor prophets as well. And I, if I could just do a commercial for the Old Testament prophets and encourage you to think about them. They're such an important part of the dispensational premillennial uh, uh, perspective, uh, beliefs, and teachings. And I, you know, I hear people say, yeah, why? Are there there's so many of these Old Testament prophets, you know, they're so grouchy and they say the same thing over and over again, you know, well, and I, and I know that nobody ever says, oh, my wife's verse is Obadiah 1.4 <laughs> or anything like that. So they're kind of out of our context, right? Uh, and they're difficult to preach. You can't start in on the book of Isaiah verse by verse, right? If you did, that'd be the rest of your preaching career. That'd be the end of it, just one by one. But that doesn't work. So we got to come up with some way. Most of us have never heard a sermon on Zephaniah or Obadiah, for that matter. But we got to come up with some way to help our people grasp onto the importance of what the Old Testament prophets say. I think it's like 20%. 25% 25% of the significance or of the apologetic or the dispensational premillennial view. Maybe theme by theme or big idea by big idea, but somehow we got to begin to teach the Old Testament prophets. And the Old Testament prophets are the only ones who specifically speak of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. So the specific phrase, the day of the Lord, is found 17 times in eight of the 16 prophets. And then you also have seven of the other eight prophets who use similar phrases, such as uh, the day of God's wrath. But it just saturates. We put all these together. I'll talk about it a little more in just a minute. And it just is. I, I think it's not an exaggeration. I have this quote um, to say that the prophets want us to comprehend that the decisive events of the day of the Lord are the greatest of all events in the future bringing history to uh, consummation. So I give a definition here of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord refers to Yahweh's unmistakable, special intervention into the world affairs in which he judges his enemies, saves a remnant at the arrival of the Messiah, renews creation, vindicates and exalts himself, establishes the kingdom of God on the earth and prepares the new heavens and the new earth. That's too much. It's just the time when God takes over the planet. That's the day of the Lord. Now, God is already a sovereign, but he's not the functional ruler in the sense that Satan is. He's the God of this age, right? And at the time of the day of the Lord, though, the Messiah, the, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, becomes a mediator of the world, as well as God being the sovereign ruler of the world. So I have listed off what I think is in here. We'll talk about it more as we go along here. That the day of the Lord, then, is an era that includes the Lord's sovereign intervention into the world in an unmistakable way, the Lord's judgment on his enemies, both Jews and Gentiles, Messiah's arrival at a crucial time of battle, salvation of a remnant of Jews and Gentiles, the renewal of a creation, the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth, the vindication and exaltation of the Lord, and the burning and dissolving of the present heavens and earth and the preparation of the new heavens and the new earth. Then some clarifications. Clarifications. Uh, one, the day of the Lord is more than 24 hours. Sometimes people just think of a day as day. But in the in the ancient Hebrews, sometimes the word day was pregnant with uh, meaning denoting decisive events. So that's what we get with the day of the Lord. Number two, the day of the Lord is described with other day terms. Now, this is debatable. Some people believe that you should just study just the day of the Lord when you're studying the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord is used something like... Uh, Um, already said 17 times but it always refers to judgment but there are these similar terms that go with it such as the day that day in that day the day of wrath the coming day so these similar terms also often refer to judgment but sometimes also refer to the blessings of the eschatological day into the millennial kingdom i believe so and why do i believe that the evidences for that, it seems to me that they are used as interchangeably. day of the Lord and other day terms are used interchangeably in some passages. For example, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near, it will be a day of clouds, a day of doom for the nations. So you have the day, or the day of the Lord. We're talking about the same thing. I just believe those phrases, the day, in that day, uh, the day of God's wrath, these are all days that are speaking about or synonymous to a certain extent with the, the phrase the day of the Lord. Uh, one of Zechariah's prophecies essentially identifies the day of the Lord and they behold a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken for you will be divided in your midst. So when I'm talking about the day of the Lord, I'm also including all these other terms in that day uh Pentecost, White Pentecost says that the phrase that day or that great day occurs more than 75 times in the Old Testament. So you put that together with the phrase day of the Lord and you got over 100 times that we're talking about the day or the day of the Lord running through the Old Testament prophets. Number three, the day of the Lord is going to be centered in the Middle East. Ezekiel calls the Middle East the center of the earth. And uh, when I say the Middle East, I think we have to also include uh, North Africa go buy it okay pardon me there we go oh, It went away i hope you saw it real quick but anyway <laughs> thank you uh you know you can hardly see israel in that map, Kenya. I, don't, I bet you can't see it at all. Tiny, tiny little Israel is surrounded a thousand miles in any way with nations that would really, really like to destroy Israel. And it goes from Turkey in the north over to Iran, at least to Iran, down to Saudi Arabia, down to northern Sudan, Egypt, Libya, Algeria. These are the countries that are consistently mentioned in the uh passages on the day of the lord that judgments are coming on so these are the main israel and uh, these nations are usually spoken of in the passages on the day of the lord israel is obvious the Jew, the uh, prophets were jews they were interested in the nation of israel and what was going to happen to it but the prophets also single out and prophesy against specific gentile nations though interestingly not all of the things that the prophets say about the Gentile nations concerns judgment. So you have a phrase like, what's happening here? <laughs> I don't know, I doesn't wanna to go to that slide, I guess. Tricky. Okay, I hope you saw that. <laughs> but anyway, the the point is that that sometimes they, the prophets say good things about the, uh, about the other nations. Jeremiah uh, has a long passage, a long chapter, God cursing Moab. But then when he gets to the end of that chapter, he says, but in the latter days I will restore the fortunes of Moab. So sometimes the Gentile nations get the blessings of God mentioned as well as, the, uh, as well as the judgment as well. Now, when we say the center of, of the day of the Lord is going to be the Middle East, it doesn't mean that the rest of the world won't be affected. Of course, they will be affected. The entire world is impacted by the day of the Lord. No, I don't seem to be able to. Am I doing this right? Guys. I'll stay up. Um, anyway, in Ezekiel chapter 14, 21, God talks about the different um, the, uh, the different kinds of judgments that will be true in the day of the Lord. And these include famine, sword wild beasts, pandemics, uh, those of us have been through the uh, time of the uh, pandemic, you can see how things would spread across the world, you know, famine, pandemics, all those kind of things, so indeed, those things have, uh, are mentioned as things that will happen for the whole world, so I'm just saying, millions of people are going to be killed throughout the whole world in the day of the Lord. But well, I think the center of the events is going to be the uh, uh the Middle East. Yeah, so there's Ezekiel 14, 21. Thank you. Then some big ideas that I want to just pass from the pass along from the from the prophets. They have some big ideas that they emphasize. One is that the Lord will crush the rebellious world with catastrophic judgments. Uh that's pretty much the essence of a lot of the Day of the Lord things. Uh, for example. For the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation, destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark as it's rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Well, wow, that's pretty chilling stuff that's going to happen in the day of the Lord. Then um, there are other names for it as well. There's Jeremiah's time of Jacob's trouble or Jacob's distress. The, John the Baptist calls it the baptism of fire. Jesus Christ calls it the tribulation or the great tribulation. But when the day of the Lord arrives, it'll be the end of life as the human race has known it. It's going to be a complete different day when god takes over the world in the functional sense as well as in the sovereign sense number two the warrior messiah will arrive from heaven Uh, we'll talk about that more in a minute and number three a remnant of believers will emerge there's a lot of preaching during the day of the lord you got the two prophets right you got 144,000 jewish evangelists you got an angel flying in the midst of heaven preaching the gospel so that there are lots and lots of people saved in the tribulation or in the day of the Lord. Uh, John saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages that would accept the offer of salvation, though it may cost them their lives. So God continues to be merciful, continues to be loving even through the tribulation, and still presents the gospel for people to be saved. Uh, Number four, Yahweh will confirm the new covenant with Israel. Number five, the Lord will be vindicated and take over the world. Dozens of times in the uh, prophets you will find this phrase, then you will know that I'm the Lord. So here comes judgment, then you will know that I'm the Lord. Here comes the regathering of Israel, then you will know that I'm the Lord. And here comes the millennial kingdom, then you will know that I'm the Lord. And even for the case of, uh, of the Gentile nations, He says, so I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. And then they will know that I am the Lord. This is a worldwide recognition of the Lord that comes to pass in the day of the Lord. Number six, the Messiah will rule over a world of peace and righteousness. Nearly every prophet talks about this golden age. I don't have time to read them, but you know, like Micah chapter 4. Come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted above the hills. Everybody's going to come and worship at the temple of God. And not only that, God's going to be the Supreme Court just, uh, justice for the world, and he's going to secure peace and security for everyone. Then number seven, the day of the Lord is always impending. Prophets describe it as near. Your doom has come to you, O oh inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near. A day of tumult and not a joyful shouting on the mountains. Uh, and they also describe it as the time of coming. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. The Klein, one of the commentaries, says, the form is, is a participle that Communicates imminent action. Now, when he when he say that it's near and when it's impending, I don't think that the day of the Lord is imminent in the same sense as the rapture, because I think there are some things that have to happen before the day of the Lord begins. One's the rapture, but there are other things in in the prophets. I think in Daniel seven, for example, that uh, have to take place before the day of the Lord begins, not before the rapture, but before the day of the Lord begins. So it's in my mind, it's like a, a volcano, up on the hill, you know, overlooking this little town. Steam comes up every now and then. Uh, one of these days, it's going to erupt, and destroy everything in the valley below. That's kind of the idea in my mind. I call it the impending, uh, impending day of the Lord. Okay, some puzzles. How rare is the day of the Lord? Uh, when uh, A tornado destroys a city, is that the day of the Lord? Uh, When COVID kills lots of people, is that the day of the Lord? Was World War II the day of the Lord? My answer to that is no. All, All catastrophes, disasters do go back to the Garden of Eden, of course, but the day of the Lord is a unique day, and nobody will have any question about it when it comes as God begins to take over the world. Puzzle number two, a little more complicated. How do the historical and eschatological prophecies relate to each other? But the uh, prophets prophesied judgment on two different eras, thousands of years apart. Some of these we'd call historical prophecies because they've already been fulfilled, right? In the captivities, captivity of Israel in 722 BC and Judah in 586 So these are historical prophecies, and Alva J. McLean says that the prophets of Israel were more than predictors of things to come. These prophets were also men of their own times, in the sense that they spoke a message which was immediately relevant to the things present in the historical kingdom. So the Old Testament prophets, their immediate concern was the idolatry and the apostasy of Israel at that time, and so they brought these prophecies that had been fulfilled and have been fulfilled in the captivities. But the other prophecies that they speak about, we might call the eschatological prophecies because they have not yet been fulfilled, yet even though they were proclaimed some 2,500 years ago, But they will be fulfilled in the future impending day of the Lord. So how do you tell the difference between these two when you're reading the prophets? And I have to confess, sometimes I can't tell. And I'm not the only one who can't tell. I I came across uh, Martin Luther's commentary on Zechariah, not worth very much. But anyway, Martin Luther says, here in this chapter, I give up. Well I'm not sure what the prophet's talking about, so uh and then even um, you know big time scholars like uh likejor elson Ladd from last- last uh, century, he says in all these prophecies, history and eschatology are so blended together as to be practically indistinguishable. so why is it difficult? I thought about that. Why is it difficult for us to be be able to tell between the historical and eschatological prophecies number one is because the same nations are specified in both the historical and eschatological prophecies these nations in Israel I'm sorry in the Middle East and North Africa a second reason why it's difficult is because the mindset of the ancient uh, Hebrews was sometimes focused on was not as much focused on detailed chronology as as we are Robert Larry Harris talks about the Hebrew conception of time, it's like a, a view that a man has when he's rowing a boat. He sees where he's been, and he backs into the future. You know, so this is your row, and that's sort of the way the prophets look at it sometimes. And they don't have tenses. You know, it's not past, present, and future in the Hebrew. If I remember my Hebrew se- seminary, you know, 70 years ago, whether I remember that well or not, but uh, they have, what, complete and incomplete, they have perfected and uh, and imperfect and those kind of things, and you can place those depending upon the context, neither the past, present, or the future, so it makes it all the more difficult sometimes to tell whether this is a historical prophecy, something that was has already been fulfilled or something in the eschatological day of the Lord. So, what you find then, I think, the prophets often speak of future events as though they were present, like in Isaiah 9, 6. Sometimes they speak of future events as though they were in the past, like in Isaiah 53. You can even have uh, chronology in a certain chapter that can kind of be backwards. Uh, they can be talking about the eternal state, and then a little later they'll talk about the kingdom of God. Uh, so it's that makes it difficult right to understand the difference between the historical and the eschatological then number three not the the these passages the messages from the spirit of yahweh often but not always come to the prophets in big picture so you have judgment and the judgment could be for the historical prophets or it could be for the eschatological prophecies at the same time dr fruchtenbaum uh in his amazing book the footsteps of of Jesus says often a passage uh, or a block of scripture is speaking of two different persons or two different events that are separated by a long period of time in the passage itself they are blended into one picture and the time gap between the two persons or two events is not presented by the text itself and then the fourth reason why I think it's difficult and there may be others is that Yahweh may sometimes have one of the prophet's message to be less than obvious uh, i think it is mike eiser says that uh, sometimes the prophecies are somewhat cryptic in order to keep the dark world in the dark you're in this cosmic war and god did not want everything revealed right away in fact he told daniel you know to seal up your prophecies and these things will become uh more obvious as time goes along now a clue for the puzzle solving the puzzle uh, one is obvious if the things that are predicted in the passage haven't yet come to pass, for example, sorry, the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark and it's rising and the moon will not shed its light. Okay. We haven't seen that yet, right? So that's obviously an eschatological prophecy. But beyond that, there's this rapport between the historical and the eschatological prophecies. They walk hand in hand. You can't just go, I don't think you can go to the prophets and say, okay, all these are historical fulfilled prophets, and all these are to be fulfilled eschatologically. They just kind of have this rapport between them. So we've come up with different ways to describe it. Uh, For example, um, one is foreshadow. You know that the historical prophecies foreshadow the future, which would mean that the prophets interpret the future in terms of their present. Or it could even mean that the prophets interpret the present in terms of the future. I mean, it's just, it's this, again, this rapport, this, this hand-in-hand relationship between the historical and the eschatological. There are other terms we could come up with, that theologians have come up with, Besides foreshadow are patterns, there are patterns that these prophecies follow. You could say that the historical prophecies are mini pictures of the eschatological passage, or you could possibly say that they are pledges and assurances that uh, what is prophesied in the future will take place, or that the historical prophets' prophecies are guarantees of the future eschatological prophecies or they are foreboding tokens of the eschatological prophecies. I kind of like that uh, phrase in particular. Uh, It's uh, Van Cameron says, when he judges in history, his expression of displeasure and wrath is a foreboding token of the final intrusion of the eschatological judgment. Now, we can complain about this and say, why is it so hard to tell the difference between it? But look at it another way. This is almost magical, the way God, way these prophets, are able to, you know, interact with each other and inform each other. That's an amazing part of the study of the Old Testament. So we can be encouraged because the Lord is a righteous God who in the day of the Lord will demonstrate his righteousness by judging the earth with these catastrophic judgments and third we should be encouraged because the warrior messiah will finalize the cosmic war when he arrives on the planet in summary he's going to rescue israel from annihilation by crushing the armies of the antichrist it will send the antichrist and his prophet to the lake of fire and lock satan and the demons in hades i think probably a lot of Christians have a kind of an inadequate view of what's going to happen at the second coming. I think, I think we, some of us think, you know, well, Christ is going to just kind of float down. Everybody's going to be, ooh, and ah, oh, look at that. You know, everything's going to be nice and peaceful. Well, uh, actually, there is joy, you know, in, in the heavenlies and on earth uh, from the godly. And they will be saying, hallelujah. For our God, the Almighty reigns. But, you know, for the wicked, this is going to be one horrific time. There are many events that occur near the end of the tribulation that are connected with the second coming. So you have uh, several. You have the battle for Jerusalem. You have the arrival of the warrior Messiah. You have the battle in the desert mountains. You have the repentance and conversion of the nation, and you have the Messiah on Mount of Olives. You have a great earthquake, and there are several other things you could probably throw into this that actually happened the same uh, near the same time. I think the exact chronology of these events, again, is difficult to determine because of what we said about the way the prophets bring the information, and there are so many prophets, and they're all bringing things together. They don't contradict each other, but there are just a lot of them and a lot of information that's coming in, so it makes it a little difficult. If you have your Bibles, maybe you want to turn to Zechariah chapter 14, and we'll just kind of spend some time there in the last 10 minutes here or so. Zechariah's prophecies uh, may be at least one of the most complete descriptions of the events surrounding the coming of the warrior Messiah in the Old Testament. But, you know, the book of Zechariah is not in any kind of a chronological order. Uh, you find the Zechariah talking about the kingdom in Zechariah 2. Uh, you know, we'd like Zechariah to be, okay, judgment, first third of the book. Second coming, second third of the book. Millennial kingdom, third third of the book. But it doesn't work that way. He's got all these themes running through many of the prophecy, prophecies that he get. They're kind of independent from each other, though they are dealing with the same kinds of of themes and it seems to me that for example when I begin to figure this out in my view that some of the events in Zechariah 14 certainly come before the events in Zechariah 12 and I think Zechariah 14 is kind of a summary of lots of things that Zechariah teaches in his book but having said all that um, I'm going to try to give a suggested sequence of events uh, this is not the majority view. This is a uh, minority view, but I claim Dr. Fruchtenbaum. He believes the same as I do. So if you want to know more about this, get his his uh, unbelievable book, The Footsteps of the Messiah, and read through those chapters. But here's a sequ- suggested sequence of events. Uh, one, we have the abomination of desolation. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So that sets off the second half of the tribulation. And what happens then at that time is you have the flight into the desert mountains. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You know, Get out of there. Get out quick. Don't, don't go back for anything. This is going to be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world till now. No, nor ever shall be. So that kind of begins a whole series of events. Revelation chapter 12 also adds to that. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Remember wilderness, it's not northern Minnesota kind of wilderness where I used to go fishing. And you read wilderness, it's going to say, think desert, right? Uh, So think desert. They fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for Uh, uh, three and a half days, uh, three and a half years. So she's nourished back there by God. He takes care of her back there. Then you have the attack on Jerusalem. And so the Old Testament prophets teach that there's going to be a a horrendous war when the Antichrist guy gathers together uh, a group of uh, Gentile nations, enemies of Israel, in order to come against Israel. Sometimes we call this the Battle of Armageddon. I don't think it's a good name for what happens here. Uh, It's more than a battle, it's a campaign, it's a war, and it doesn't really take place in Armageddon. So the Battle of Armageddon is not a really good name for it, but nations gather in Armageddon, and then they come south and they attack uh, Jerusalem. So the attack on Jerusalem, they move down from the plain of Megiddo, uh, the Valley of Jezreel, to Jerusalem. Not just the old city, but the entire Uh, Jerusalem area there so Antichrist and Antichrist wins this this is Zechariah 14 verse 2 for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and no doubt after heroic stand by Israel the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped half of the city shall go out into the exile but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city so half of the city's population is carried away into captivity by the Antichrist nations The other half are left in the city. Then you have the battle in the desert mountains. This is a part that is difficult to decide where to put, I think, in the chronology. The Antichrist, in in my suggestion here, the Antichrist then turns his attention to that group that's fled down into the mountainous area around the deserts. His goal is to exterminate the Jewish race. And the situation, though the Lord has taken care of the people up to that time, situation gets desperate at this point, and there begins to be this call for repentance. And Hosea reads it this way. Come, let us return to the Lord. Holy Spirit's working in their hearts. For he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Let us know, let us... Press on to know the Lord is going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So understand here, the exiled community there begins to repent and repent and repent. And they pray the Isaiah 53 prayer. Surely has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yeah, we did esteem him stricken, spitten by God, and afflicted. And then I think the warrior Messiah arrives. And I think he arrives in the desert. Again, I'm not giving my eternal security on this view, but I think he arrives in the desert. He arrives visibly. He arrives publicly. He can be seen by the whole world. He comes in the clouds in the of glory. And the majority view is that he comes to the Mount of Olives, and that may very well be true. But there's also these, all these other prophecies that talk about his coming and dealing with uh, further south at that point. So I'll just give you some of these. He is a cloud rider, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Then you have other desert prophecies. You have Moses. I think Moses' prophecy is stated. It's translated as a past, but I really think it's a future. He said the Lord came from Sinai and Don. From Seir upon us, he has shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Then you have Abacchic. God came from Teman, which is down the south. And the holy one from Mount Paran. His brightness is like the light, rays flash from his hand. Isaiah, you have Isaiah's desert prophecy. The Lord is a sword, is sated with blood gorged with fat with the blood of lambs and goats with the fat of the kidneys of rams the lord is a sacrifice in basra a great slaughter in the land of edom the lord has a day of vengeance a year of recompense for the cause of zion Have ezekiel therefore they'll say the lord god i will stretch out my hand against edom edom is southern jordan and I think ancient Edom also extended down into what's now northwestern Saudi Arabia. I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast. I'll make it desolate from Teman even to Dedan. They shall fall by the sword. There's Micah's prophecy. I will surely assemble, old Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I put them together as a sheep of Basra. At the flock in the midst of their fold, they shall make a great noise by reason of multitude of men. The breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. have Zechariah's desert prophecy. Very similar. The Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Uh, Verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, as for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. So you have these locations down there in these desert prophecies. You have Timon, which is probably about 20 miles southeast of Petra. In southern Jordan, you have Dedan, possibly about 180 miles north of Medina in Saudi Arabia. You have Mount Paran, often associated with Mount Sinai. And you have Basra, which is probably in southern Jordan. Simply, think Petra is where those people have gathered up to that point. And if this is so, then the Lord's army, uh, the Lord will defeat the Antichrist army there, saves the citizens of Israel, and um, those first saved by the warrior warrior Messiah is going to be those in the desert. Jeremiah 31 verse 2. Oh, here's a map, just looking where those places are located. Then the ma- uh, then Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the desert when Israel sought for rest. Then you have the final battle of Jerusalem, I think it's stage two. Then the warrior Messiah and his armies moved north. And the scene changes to the scene changes to Jerusalem. And you have, in Isaiah chapter 63, you have Isaiah like a watchman. He's on the walls. He's looking south toward the southern part of Jordan, and he sees somebody coming. Who is this that comes from Edom, in crimson garments, from Basra, he who is splendid in his peril, marching the greatness of his strength? Answer is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your peril red, and your garments like his who treads the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath, their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. The day of my vengeance was in my heart, and my day of redemption had come, I looked, but there was no one to help, not even the United States. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. My wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. New Testament says the same thing. Remember in Revelation chapter 19, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the word of God. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. So if this is proper chronology, Messiah comes from the desert to Jerusalem. I think, don't you, that this is maybe what the what the psalmist was prophesying. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. Then the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory, Selah. And then Zechariah picks up the story. I think this is the second phase of the battle. This is Zechariah 14 now. that summarizes verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight Against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that li- lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the Mount shall move northward, one half shall move southward. And you shall flee. This is uh, 50% of the city that was still in Jerusalem. You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azale. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So the earthquake allows these people to escape from what's going to happen in Jerusalem at that point. And what's going to happen is this final battle of the ages. For all the marbles, so to speak, I think it's only appropriate it takes place at Jerusalem. And Satan and the Antichrist know that they have to win this battle or lose. And so the wicked human forces are also helped by the demonic forces. And the second stage of the battle for Jerusalem is described then in Zechariah 12. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem, this is verse 2, a cup of staggering the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. All the nations of the earth will gather against it. Verse 5. Then the clans of Judah will say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I'll make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of the wood, like flaming torch among the sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Verse 9, on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And God's going to punish the demonic armies in the heavens and the kings on the earth. This is what Isaiah says. On that day the Lord will punish the host, the armies of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. then the Jews begin to repent. The Jews in Jerusalem begin to repent and repent and repent. Zechariah 12. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and deserve it, didn't deserve it. And please for mercy. So that when they look on me, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Verse 11 on that day, mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for added, Grimman. And the plain of Megiddo, the land will mourn, each family by itself, family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, family of the house of Levi by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives. themselves this is the soon and coming king and I get impatient I pray regularly don't you your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and I wonder why the Lord doesn't come but I remember that the prophets over and over and over again talk about the long-suffering nature of God And Peter says that the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, but all should reach repentance. So I have a grandson that's not saved yet. No. So the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and he continues on that way. And I just think we can be encouraged that, that the Lord is soon and coming. I, I remember Habakkuk, and I'm done with this. For still the vision awaits, God tells us, frustrated Habakkuk. For still the vision awaits his appointed time and hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and our
0: Savior. Amen. (laughs)